And now for something completely different. Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And welcome back to the show this morning. Of course, it is, uh, well, Thursday as we get ready to wrap up this uh, first week of May, right? And uh, normally we would expect that things get a little bit better in, the, in May as we start to roll into the summer months. Been a bit of a sloppy trading week this week. Um, we'll get into some of those details this morning as well. Um, you know, it's interesting as we kind of get further into, you know, where we are Friday, we're expecting a blowout employment number. Morgan Stanley currently has one. 1.25 million people expected to be hired in the month of April uh, that will be reported on Friday. Now, that's the high end of the estimates. The consensus runs about 700,000. Uh, yesterday, we saw ADP um, report their numbers. They came in a little bit lighter than expected, or a little over 500,000. And the interesting thing there, of course, is, and, and really not surprising here, most of those jobs are basically restaurants, leisure, hospitality, those type of things, because that's what's being hired right now as we reopen states. Um, you know, one of the questions is going to be really kind of going forward is, is are we about to see the peak of that hiring spurt, so to speak? Because if you think about where we've been over the last year, companies haven't been just, you know, shut down and doing nothing for the last year. A lot of companies have reopened. A lot of companies have put people back to work. And so the question is, is how much of the employment that needs to be hired to meet current demand? has already been done versus what's left. And there's this big assumption at this moment that we're going to have 2 million jobs a month created for the next several months and we're going to be back to, to you know normal levels of employment or full employment here just in very short order. It could be the case. Um, but you know, one thing we'll need to really keep an eye on, of course, is the labor force participation rate, right? So that's a function of not just how many people are participating, but also the size of the labor force. If the labor force continues to shrink dramatically, we can reach full employment and still have a whole lot of people sitting off on the on the sidelines not working drawing government benefits etc so one thing is to understand not just the number of people being hired but also the relevance to where our labor force uh, labor force was pre-pandemic versus where it is today and how many people are actually participating in that because that's really what drives economic growth longer term is you need more people in the economy working producing in order to get a paycheck in order to consume that's what creates sustainable economic growth now you know speaking of that the other side of this is population growth which the cdc just reported that in 2020 we had a near four percent drop in the birth rate uh in the u.s now look i don't know what's going on with you people but you were locked up with your significant other for a year and you couldn't find anything better to do but stare at tiktok i mean <laughs> <laughs> you know, population growth is very important. As Will Rogers once said, demographics are destiny. And if you don't start producing uh, more children, we're going to have a demographic problem down the road. Um, but, you know, but this is really kind of start, what we're starting to look at here over the next couple of months in particular is going to be this peak 
of economic activity. And once we get to that peak of economic activity, then we're going to start to see things stabilize at what we're going to see as a new trend or new trajectory of economic growth. So that's going to be really kind of the key issue to watch here, particularly in June and July, where I think we're going to start to see some of the peak in these economic numbers um, as we go through this, this process. Now, that also has a lot of things to do with where the markets are going to be later this year. And the Federal Reserve is about to run into a real problem. We're going to be talking with Michael Leibowitz this morning specifically about this. But the Federal Reserve is about to run into a big problem here of spiking inflationary pressures, core PCE. Now, so there are two types of inflation measures that we pay attention to. So CPI, which is what normally everybody understands, right? We report CPI. That's a consumer price index. That's the index everybody pays attention to, right? Uh, that CPI number is what we measure inflation. That's what gauges Social Security benefits, etc. There's also another measure of inflation called the personal consumption expenditures, right? And so the PCE, the, and this is a, a, tree, uh, a kind of a trimmed price index, um, what that looks at is, and that's what the Fed focuses on, is what's happening in prices, you know, really with, throughout the entire complex. And that's really the focus that what the Fed takes a look at here. And when they're looking at that, they're about to see a very, very sharp spike in the core of that index. So stripping out food and, and other areas areas, you're going to see a very sharp spike in that trimmed mean PCE number. And that's going to really start to put the Fed into a bit of a box here about really increasing uh, interest rates and, and, and having to start to taper and at least talk about tapering more of their monetary policy. So, you know, one of the big drivers of the markets here over the last year or so have been, you know, Fed goes burr. And this is just, you know, the printing of money. So that may be in a real, may be a focus of markets here over the next couple of months as the Fed starts to really have to grapple with this idea of much stronger rates of inflation. And if we do see the unemployment rate drop markedly, which is expected to, to head back down into the five handle on Friday, that's going to start putting the, the, the Fed in more pressure as well to start easing back on some of their bond purchases, particularly in the mortgage market where there's been a lot of run up in home prices. Um, you know, one side effect of the of the shutdown interesting story out this morning uh, we've had a bunch of disruptions of supply chains around the country. Well, one of the side effects of that is that lethal injection drugs apparently are unavailable. So South Carolina today is passing a bill and going to the governor for signature, adding death uh, firing squad uh, back to the selection of choices that inmates have for their execution. Uh, previously, it was electric chair in South Carolina and lethal injection. I'm not sure why you would choose electric chair. Lethal injection sounds a whole lot better. Uh, but since drugs aren't available, you now get to have your choice of your last meal, what you want to eat, and then firing squad or <laughs> electric chair. Whoa. The choices aren't getting better here, but the, but but this is a byproduct of the shutdown of the supply chains. So this is talk, talking about supply chains and disruptions and firing squads. Uh, this morning we're going to have two important reports out. Uh, Peloton really uh, announced earnings, big miss there, and really expectations now are in in much uh, much worse for them going forward as people are starting to go back to work. Less orders of bikes to bike at home now. Uh, people want to get out 
outside, want to go back to work, do, go back to their gym. Uh, big drop in Peloton shares, broke major moving averages across the board, very significant downtrend here. Etsy, of course, also announced uh, earnings yesterday. S blowout numbers on earnings and revenue did a great job. Strong fundamentals. This stock's going to open down around the 200-day moving average, maybe a little bit a little below this morning. Looks about 10% down at the open uh, on weaker expectations. Now, look, this is just, the reason I picked these two outs because this is what we've been talking about with the markets here over the last couple of weeks. Everything over the last year has been great. People have been locked up at home. They've been shopping. They've been doing everything online. They've had lots of stimulus money. The problem is going forward is, is there's no more stimulus. People are going back to work. They're going to have to live on their wages. So the boom that we saw of people sitting at home, shopping online, doing those things online, now shifting back into the real world, a lot of these companies are under a lot of pressure, at least in the short term, as kind of economic shift back into kind of real world essentials post stimulus and post bailout. So again, just kind of paying attention to this, you know, there's, you know, the, the, while these companies are reporting very good earnings, and this has really been across the metrics of, of the market, companies have been reporting very, very good earnings uh, this quarter um, based on massive improvements in net margins because of work at home, because of reduced employment because of reduced wages all that's going to reverse here over the course of the next few months making it much more challenging for markets to advance from here so we're going to keep, keep watching that keep you up to date quick break come back with michael lee we're going to get into the fed what the fed's doing and of course yellen's comments about rates don't go away Listening to the Real Investment Show. We're going for the best on our next Candid Coffee with Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff, Saturday, May 22nd. The best accounts to save, the best accounts to invest. Investments are one thing, the vehicles you place them in can be quite another. Which are the best for you? Learn about the best types of accounts to save for healthcare, retirement, and emergency reserves on our next Candid Coffee with Ratliff and Rosso, Saturday, May 22nd. Register now at realinvestmentadvice.com. Realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show. And welcome back to the show, of course. Uh, we get this Thursday, second best day of the week underway, of course, as always. Uh, Michael Leibowitz joining us uh, today as well to pick up a little bit on what's happening, you know, really kind of across financial markets and, uh, you know, more importantly, interest rates, Federal Reserve, etc. A lot of stuff to kind of unpack today. We've got some, uh, we've got to talk a little bit about the semiconductor market. Um, we're going to do that in the next segment, what's going on there, because uh, some interesting, uh, very interesting interview with the CEO of Intel, and uh, talking about the chip problem that currently exists and how long that may last. And of course, this is really impacting a lot of areas of the market from 
you know, automobile production to computers to et cetera. Um, and this is all part of that supply chain issue that, as I was just uh, you know, commenting about a second ago, the supply chain issue is affecting everything, right? I mean, now now prison, you know, prisons can't get lethal injection drugs, so they're having to opt for firing squads. You know, this is the, you know, we're seeing some of the, the most, some of the strangest, you know, effects of supply chain disruption that, you know, it's kind of, prior covid shutdown was was you know something that nobody would even fathom <laughs> could, could occur right. but that's what's going on uh michael Leibowitz, welcome to the show this morning how are you good good thank you for having me good um okay so a couple of things um one uh, it was interesting janet yellen out earlier this week she uh she she she's become quite the acrobat. Um, apparently, she can flip flop in one day. And she started out in the morning talking about the fact that maybe the Fed needs to hike rates. The market sold off sharply. And uh, by the afternoon, she's like, no, no, I was just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. Really wasn't saying that at all. You completely misunderstood me. Um, but we've actually seen this. It's not just yelling. We've actually seen a couple of Fed members coming out talking about, you know, one will say, hey, we need to maybe think about hiking rates and tapering QE. And then one comes right behind him and says, no, 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 we're not even thinking about thinking about thinking. I don't know what that guy's talking about. Um, it seems to be a, quite a bit of dissent going on now, but even but not only within the Fed itself, but also between the Fed and the Treasury. Yeah, I thought what happened with Yellen uh, yesterday, two, day, two days ago, I guess it was, was probably one of the most important things you can watch in the markets over the last few weeks. Janet Yellen was the Fed chairman, Fed chairwoman from the, you know, post Bernanke until Powell. Now she's the Treasury secretary, very powerful woman. She knows how the Fed works inside and out. She speaks for the administration, the executive branch, which some will say, myself included, owns the Federal Reserve at this point or comes about as close to owning the Federal Reserve. Um, so things that she says matters, but it, it, it's Janet Yellen basically came out and said, if the economy overheats, interest rates can rise or will rise. That's the truth. You know, there's nothing she said there that that isn't known. Right. That's mm -hmm. how it's gone on for since the history in 19 when the Fed started in 1913, the history of the Fed. So what Janet Yellen said was, yes, that's obvious. And then quickly, two hours later, she had an <laughs> interview or a speech and she redacted everything well remember because i don't wait, wait wait but let's be clear she said that and then two hours later the nasdaq was down two percent the s p right, was down right. well over one percent and right. then she redacted her statement right. so bottom line is look we, we've talked about this yeah this market is not where it's at on valuations it's not on where it's at on economic forecasts it's not the only thing supporting at this level are flows, cash flows. Mm -hmm. And what supports that? It's QE and it's what the Fed is doing. So any sign that the Fed may have to slow up to any degree, I mean, even when she just said the truth, is going to become problematic for the market. And that's what we saw. And this is the trap that we've been talking about for a long time that the Fed is going to find themselves in very shortly. And what's funny is I've heard one after another Fed member come out and say, we... We do expect some really short-term spikes in inflation, but it's transitory. If it's not transitory, temporary, we have the tools for that. Of course they have the tools <laughs> for that, but are you willing to use the tools for that? Because the tool for that is essentially kicking the legs out of the stock market, right? It, right. It's, it's, it's reducing QE, it's raising rates, and that's everything that brought the stock market to where it at, is. So there's no doubt the Fed could temper inflation. Right. Mm -hmm. That that's 
that's that's possible. What's not possible is that they will allow the carnage in the financial markets to occur that they would likely bring on. So what does the Fed do? And that's, uh, you know, I think what we saw with Janet Yellen just accentuates that problem and shows you how uh, how uh, severe it is, how much pressure there is and how little room there is for them to make any kind of comment that mm-hmm. that says that QE may not be permanent. Well, and this, I think this is the, you know, one of the, the potential risk of the market ultimately is that the market, you know, may well start creating the problem for the Fed. In other words, interest rates start rising, you know, on the 10-year Treasury because of higher rates of inflation. And, you know, the Federal Reserve should, you know, look, the, there's no reason for the Federal Reserve to do what they do. Um, if you go back in history, ever since the Fed has become active, um, in the financial markets and really in the economy in terms of raising and lowering interest rates and trying to follow their mandates of full employment and interest rates. Um, they've created financial crisis after financial crisis after financial crisis. Um, and, you know, really what it's led to is a much bigger disparity of wealth gap in the economy and, and a whole variety of others. It's not just them, it's, a, it's other factors as well. But, you know, the Fed plays a very big part of this. And a lot of the mentality right now is, is like, hey, the stock market can't go down as long as the Fed's printing money. That's great. Certainly understand that. That's just exacerbating the wealth gap. But, you know, honestly, there's really no need for them to intervene. If markets were allowed to function on their own, yeah, sure, markets wouldn't be at 4,000 on the S&P. It'd probably be around 2,000 right now. But that's where valuations predict they should be. Um, But, you know, things would probably be a whole lot healthier within the economy, a much better distribution of equality in the economy, uh, stronger economic growth. (laughs) We wouldn't have five banks that make up the entire financial sector for the most part. Um, You have a much better distribution of business structures and much healthier business structures as well. So, you know, really, if we look back at the history of the Fed and what they've done for the for the economy, it really hasn't been something that they should be proud of. Um, you know, yes, they've right. boosted asset markets, but they really haven't increased the health and economic prosperity of the country as a whole. But this is but this is the trap they're in, right? They they can't if they raise rates and if they taper, the market falls off the cliff and then consumer confidence falls, you're in a recession, then companies start going bankrupt and everybody runs to the Fed back for for bailouts. So, you know, we've just right. we've put this um you know, that we've enabled this cycle of government support. And that's something we're actually going to touch on in the next segment about the semiconductor industry. You know, companies are now dependent upon the government for money. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll talk about that next. But the government or the Federal Reserve has put markets at levels that are not natural. And by natural, I mean, that's where they would not be trading if they weren't involved. Mm -hmm. So for them to become uninvolved, those markets have to go back to levels that the free market would find as fair value. And that's 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 where we're at now. We're at a plane flying at over 50,000 feet. Right. And it should only be at 20,000 feet. Right. The, The question is, how does the Fed kind of pull themselves out of that equation? Well, they can't. And. They can't. Well, and it's not and because, it, and let's and, be honest, it's not just the Fed. It's it's the and, European Central Bank. It's the Bank of Japan. Of it's course. the Bank of China. It's everybody. And, and we know there's a lot of turbulence right ahead, right? We know there's going to be some very significant, infl- you know, some big inflation numbers mm-hmm. in the next few months. It, that's just built in, right? Everyone's expecting it. The question is, and our, our colleague Nick asked me this the other day, and I thought it was a brilliant question. I really don't have an answer. 
he goes, Mike, how long is transitory? You and you and Lance keep saying transitory. The Fed keeps saying transitory. Everyone mm-hmm. says transitory. I said, Nick, I don't know. It could be two months. It could be five months. But the problem is every month beyond every month it keeps going on. People are going to start saying maybe it's not transitory. Maybe it's permanent. And if it's permanent, that has huge repercussions for for everything. Well, right? I, think, I think we need to define what transitory is and, and versus non-transitory. So first of all, when pri- when companies raise prices, those aren't transitory. Companies don't lower prices once they raise them as a function, right? So uh, for instance, uh, Procter & Gamble just recently increased the price of paper towels by shrinking the number of towels that you get, right? So now there's 20 fewer sheets in that roll. As soon as people get used to buying paper towels with 20 fewer sheets, then there's no reason for Procter & Gamble, even if prices fall on lumber and, and wood products, et cetera, that go into making paper towels, they're not gonna increase the number of sheets because now their profit margin goes up. So that right. permanent rate of, in, that inflation remains permanent. When we're talking about transitory though, we're, we're talking about, I think, and, and, and to clarify that term, when I'm talking about transitory is that when you see spiking levels of inflation, that is transitory because what's going to happen is that you're going to trigger an economic slowdown, which contracts consumer spending because of higher prices. And then that's going to lead to a deflationary push within the economy. And you're going to see inflationary pressures overall come down. And a lot of that is going to come through reduced wage growth. And you'll see wage growth start to drop, which is going to be deflationary across the economy. So that is going to be transitory, but when companies raise prices or, or impact you through way, uh, through shrinkflation, which is giving you less for the same amount of money, that never changes. <laughs> right, right. And, and the question will be is how long does this last? Are we going to see this little spike for weeks and months? Right. You know, will will it subside by July, August? Probably and not. How will the what's that? <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> It's probably going to be Who with knows? us for right. several, quite a few months, but it, it, it could be. Yeah. And every and and the longer it lasts, the more concern everyone's going to have, including the Fed. And I think the more this happens, the more people are going to question the Fed. And I think number one on that list are is uh, Washington yeah, senators and representatives because they have to represent their people that are now paying a lot more for food. Well, let's talk about when we come back from the break. You know, one thing that has been uh, going up a lot in price have been automobiles, uh, computers, everything using a semiconductor. We'll come back. We'll talk about a very interesting interview between Leslie Stahl and the um, CEO of Intel uh, talking about the semiconductor problem. So we'll kind of unpack that a little bit. And he also makes some interesting comments about, you know, government role. So we'll, we'll talk about all that when we come back with Michael Leibowitz. Don't go away. You feel alright when you hear the music playing. Well, I'm inside, but you don't see too many faces. Listen anyplace, anytime at realinvestmentadvice.com. We're going for the best on our next Candid Coffee with Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff, Saturday, May 22nd. The best accounts to save, the best accounts to invest. Investments are one thing. The vehicles you place them in can be quite another. Which are the best for you? Learn about the best types of accounts to save for healthcare, retirement, and emergency reserves on our next Candid Coffee with Ratliff and Rosso, Saturday, May 22nd. Register now at realinvestmentadvice.com. realinvestmentadvice.com. You're listening to The Real Investment Show. 
modern day warrior, mean, mean, try to taste Tom Sawyer, mean, mean, cry. Going to continue to have shortages, not just in cars, but in our phones and for our computers, for everything. I think we have a couple of years until we catch up to the surging demand across every aspect of the business. COVID showed that the global supply chain of chips is fragile and unable to react quickly to changes in demand. One reason? Fabs are wildly expensive to build, furbish, and maintain. It used to be that there were 25 companies in the world that made the high-end, cutting-edge chips. And now there are only three. And in the United States, you. Yeah. One, one. Today, 75% of semiconductor manufacturing is in Asia. 25 years ago, the United States produced 37% of the world's semiconductor manufacturing in the US. Today, that number has declined to just 12%. Doesn't sound good. It doesn't sound good. And anybody who looks at supply chain says, that's a problem. And of course, this is what we wanted to kind of talk about with Michael Leibowitz this morning as well as he joins us, because this whole issue of supply chain and what's going on here with supply chains is something that's not just impacting what's going on with semiconductors. This is also impacting prices of everything. Used car prices are at a record high. So in other words, if you go out and buy a used car today, you are locking in a guaranteed loss on that car. Cars depreciate anyway, but you're paying, you're so overpaying so much for a used car that is going to really guarantee that the trade-in value of that car drops dramatically in the future once semiconductors do come back online. Um, the other side of this is, is new car prices as well. Basically, goes if you go to a car lot right now to buy a new car, as an example, um, there is no dealer discount. There is no negotiating price, and there is no negotiating on what type of car you want. It's whatever car is in the parking lot. That's what you buy. <laughs> you don't get the choice of, yeah, I like that car in black with red interior no that that you don't get that choice because there's no cars available because they can't produce them because of this cut and so in supply chains um and again this is kind of an interesting uh commentary mike uh your your thoughts on this so over the last 30 years or so this country has outsourced production of just about everything and now we're finally paying the price Right. So so companies were trying to cut their profit margins and they would start making things in other countries where labor was a lot cheaper, where there were less regulations. And, you know, we all know this has occurred mm -hmm. and and we became very dependent on other countries. Well, and, some and, of these and, countries. And, and, but part of this, too, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but part of this, too, is also kind of this. Uh, you know, problem of the standard of living that we require here in the U.S., right? You and I were talking about the other day that, right. you know, there's a, a big demand right now. There's a lot of people, uh, you know, lobbying for a $15 an hour minimum wage. And we ran the math on this on Monday. There's an article on our website right now, if you go to realinvestmentadvice.com, called the, you know, the adverse consequences of a $15 hour minimum wage. And, you know, we, we look at studies from the CBO, the Manhattan Institute, the Freedom, uh, the, the FEE, and, and, and several other uh, think tanks talking about the adverse consequences of hiking minimum wages. But $15 an hour is $30,000 a year. That's the top 1% of income earners around the world. Right. And labor costs are the biggest cost of any manufacturer. So when we demand as employees, we want 
you know, a higher minimum wage. Then we want, we don't want just a higher minimum wage, mind you. We also want a 401k plan. We also want healthcare benefits. We also want, um, you know, uh, paid vacation days off. We want paid family leave. We want this, we want that. We want that. All those costs have to be embedded inside of the products that we're, that manufacturers are producing. So costs have to go up. So in order to be competitive, they, you know, here's 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 the choice you have to make as an individual, right? You want to go buy a flat screen television for your for your living room? Great, fantastic. You can buy a U.S. made one for five thousand dollars, or buy one made in China for five hundred. Exactly the same television, all the same specs. The differential is the cost of labor. Which one do you buy? Well, this is why most of the stuff in your house is made in China. <laughs> right. So, but but you know, this is the problem that companies face, and it's something that we as a company uh, as a country have contributed to because of our demand for a much higher standard of living than, and we're not talking about just a little bit standard of living. We're talking about head and shoulders above everybody else in the world type standard of living. There's a cost to that. And look, we use debt to get there. We didn't use our own hard work to get there. And that's the other part of the problem. But here's the other issue. Companies would outsource their employees, you know, outsource production to other countries. They would save money. Their profits would be bigger. And what would have been nice was if those companies could then go ahead and invest into technology, into innovation, into employee training, Mm -hmm. into a whole bunch of things that would have boosted their profits and then made up for some of that lost production because they have new products. They're the leader in this, that or the other. Mm -hmm. And none of that happened, we, right? How many articles have we written collectively on buybacks? At least a dozen. Well, that was a kind of an interesting point here that um, you know he came to, and, and, and let me uh, jump back to this uh, interview with Leslie Stahl here because this is uh, uh, exactly well, the point that problem because relying on one region, especially one as unpredictable as Asia, is highly risky. Intel has been lobbying the U.S. government to help revive chip manufacturing at home with incentives, subsidies, and or tax breaks the way the governments of Taiwan, Singapore, and Israel have done. The White House is responding, proposing $50 billion for the semiconductor industry in the U.S. as part of President Biden's infrastructure plan. This is infrastructure. Your business is extremely lucrative. In terms of revenue, you made $78 billion last year. Why should the government come in to a company, a business that's doing so well overall? This is a big, critical industry, and we want more of it on American soil. The jobs that we want in America, the control of our long-term technology future, and, as we've also said, the disruptions in the supply chain. You have spent much more in stock buybacks than you have in research and development. A lot more. We will not be anywhere near as focused on buybacks uh, going forward as we have in the past. And that's a, that's a very nice uh, concluding sentiment from, <laughs> from him. But Intel, um, as an example, is, is just one company here that you know, has been focusing on buybacks, and, and they all have been doing this to a, to a large degree. And this is why during the, the pandemic when we shut down, we saw companies like everybody from Boeing to Carnival Cruise Lines go running for the government for a bailouts because they had spent all their revenue, all their profits that they had stored up, their cash, buying back their own shares instead of investing in R&D or just storing up cash balances in the case of an economic downturn, right? Just, right. just you know, 
crazy thing. You might actually have a recession at some point and that you might actually need a little extra cash. But, you know, this is a pandemic within the financial industry that was caused by Wall Street. Uh, buybacks used to be illegal up to 1990s. Um, they reversed that. The SEC reversed that uh, claim because uh, when they were originally banned after the Depression, it was because stock buybacks were considered a form of stock market manipulation. And what we've seen since then is, and really since 2000, after Bill Clinton tried to adjust CEO compensation, an explosion in stock buybacks, not for the benefit of shareholders or for the benefit of the company or for the benefit anything else. No, it was simply a way to beat earnings, meet Wall Street estimates, and to continue to compensate executives at an extremely high level um, where the uh, a lot of CEOs are making as, as much as 350 times what the average worker is making. And this is, of course, this is this is the, the whole problem with the $15 minimum wage, the whole wealth gap disparity. And you can understand why people are frustrated and upset. And then you hear that here's a company making $78 billion a year wanting another bailout from government to go build a plant. Why don't you make take some of your $78 billion in revenue and go right. build a plant, right? That's right. your job. That's your job right, as right. a company. Right. That interview was amazing. I had, I, I, a friend of mine told me about it. I watched it because I was very interested in what was going on with the chip market and the shortages and all that. And there's that little segment, that one-minute segment or so, mm-hmm. where he's talking about that we outsourced everything. And we, you know, and she, you know, Leslie Stahl correctly accuses him of buying back stock, stock instead of investing into Intel. Mm-hmm. And now we're on the hook for that. Right. This is this, but this is every industry. Look, look at all the bailouts that happened over this last year. Right. All the many of those companies have been buying back stock, which enriches their executives. Right. Let's mm-hmm. not make any mistake about who it benefits and who it hurts. Right. Apple just said they're going to buy 90 billion worth of stock. Maybe Apple could buy Intel and make chips here in the United <laughs> States that are actually better than the chips we buy from Taiwan or China. Sure. Yeah. And, and, but that, yeah, that's not, not going to happen. No. Right. But right. But this is look, this is the same problem. I mean, Warren Buffett sitting on one hundred and thirty eight billion dollars in cash as well. What is he doing now? He's buying back his own shares. Why? You know, because there's no better option. Everything else is overvalued, right? If you wanted to buy Intel today, it's, you, you'd have to pay way too much for the company because it's overvalued relative to right. its underlying business. Right. This is the this and and this is another side effect of what the Federal Reserve has done by liquefying markets and doing QE. Is that now they've they've pushed valuations of companies to levels to where companies are going. You know what? I've got a lot of cash. But I'm not going to do m and I'm not going to do R&D because I can't, you know, the return on that investment is not lucrative. Well, you know, it may be lucrative. Capital, you know, you know, people that run businesses are pretty good, you know, contributors of capital, right? They got to know how right. to make it work. Right. But it may be lucrative, but not for five or 10 years. Right. Buying back stock is lucrative today. That's correct. Right? And how do they get paid? Stock, stock. price. <laughs> <laughs> be right back after the break. Get ready to wrap up the show. Don't go away. I'm your host, Lance Roberts, Michael Leibowitz. Be right back. You're listening to The Real Investment Show. 
We're going for the best on our next Candid Coffee with Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff Saturday, May 22nd. The best accounts to save, the best accounts to invest. Investments are one thing. The vehicles you place them in can be quite another. Which are the best for you? Learn about the best types of accounts to save for healthcare, retirement, and emergency reserves on our next Candid Coffee with Ratliff and Rosso. Saturday, May 22nd. Register now at realinvestmentadvice.com. realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show. back to the show this morning uh, as we get ready to kind of wrap up the show futures are pointing up a little bit this morning um you know as we've talked about here on the show for the last you know really three weeks kind of ad nauseum um you know our money flow indicators have remained negative at this point and and as we said that that doesn't mean there's going to be a you know the market's going to have a crash it just means that markets aren't likely to go much of anywhere and it's exactly kind of been the case just really been consolidating sideways now for almost three weeks um thought we were going to get a sell signal earlier a buy signal earlier this week that didn't happen because of yelling and really what's been interesting here is that companies aren't getting rewarded for blockbuster earnings and we talked about that in the opening segment you know pinterest had had really good numbers but the outlook was poor because as we're coming out of this kind of this pandemic shutdown people going back to work and stimulus payments now ending you know a lot of the the buying the the stuff that people were buying um as as all been front loaded right we pull forward all those sales um same thing for peloton peloton is uh you know, been in a huge downtrend here over the last, you know, couple of months and uh, announced earnings and guidance was very weak. Stock was down sharply. Of course, you know, it is easier to cycle downhill. So, you know, that you know, <laughs> price is declining. Um, but you know, were seeing a lot of these companies really struggling. Interesting one this morning is a good example, Rocket Mortgage. Now, people have been running out mortgaging houses you know you know getting mortgages refinancing that's that's rocket mortgages business right stocks gonna be down about 14 percent here at the open this morning great earnings outlook not as good particularly you know there's a company specifically that's tied to interest rates if interest rates move up too much then all of a sudden people stop refinancing and why am i going to refinance at a higher rate right so you know what we're seeing potentially here, and this is the point I'm bringing to you, is that I want you to pay attention here. It really doesn't matter what the Fed's doing. Yes, they're doing a lot to support the markets, but there's also this realization that we may be reaching closely to the peak of this economic activity, which is a reopening process. And this is a big difference, right? We're talking about on Friday, looking at Morgan Stanley's expecting 1.2 million jobs on Friday, in the employment report. Now that's well above, that's about 500,000 above the uh, consensus of 700,000. But nonetheless, these are not new jobs. And this is important, right? We're putting people back to work in jobs that existed previously. We're not creating new jobs because the economy's expanded and, and we don't, you know, we need more people. So we're pulling more people off the sidelines. Pay attention to what's happening with labor force participation rates. Our labor force continues to shrink as more people fall out of that, that count because they've been working part-time jobs or not working, et cetera, which is causing the employment rate to fall. will be sub-6% on Friday with, this, uh, with the employment report. 
But this is about recovery. This is not about expansion. And those are two very different things. Mike, your thoughts. Right. And I think the the key numbers that we're going to start focusing heavily on are wages. So are wages going up and are they going up enough to keep up with inflation? And here's a problem facing the economy. A lot of the new jobs being adding, added are servers, restaurant servers, as Lance corrects me on. I call them <laughs> something else. Uh, movie theaters, travel, right? They're all tend to be lower paying jobs. Mm-hmm. We're adding jobs that a lot of them are below average wages. So it's great that people are working and, and, it, and it's a good thing. But the, the, the weighted average income for this country is going to stay flat or maybe slightly go lower. And uh, some of those jobs pay less than what they were getting on unemployment. So mm-hmm. effectively, there are going to be some pay cuts, right? At the same time, food prices are up 7%, that energy prices are up significantly, food, house prices, rent prices are, are moving up quickly, right? This is the problem facing the economy. And this is why everything coming up in the next three to six months is going to be a big deal. You got a Fed that wants to keep pushing on inflation. You got this pent up demand that's hitting the market hard. You got this recovery that is in full swing right now. And the rest of the world is really starting to they're a little bit behind us, but they're all starting to to recover just as quickly. England had some really strong comments this morning about their economic growth. Um, and I expect that Europe over the next couple months, as they get more and more people vaccinated and lift a lot of the restrictions, we'll see their economic growth continue. So we have these massive pressures pushing on the economy. A lot of them, we've never seen anything like this, right? We've never seen stimulus, both fiscal and monetary to this degree. We've never seen an economy shut down Ergo, a global economy mm-hmm. shut down, not right. even just the United States. Ergo, we've never seen it open back up again, right? At the same time, all our behaviors have changed. Uh, you know, I, I try to understand what's going on. Why does everyone want to buy land? Why does everyone want to own a second house? Why are they getting new cars? And it seems to me that everyone, mm-hmm. whether you're 22 or 82, is having a midlife crisis. <laughs> I mean, that's a lot of the behavior that's going on is things people do mm. to make themselves feel better and to you know almost like you got a second chance on life i'm going to live this life and yep. i'm going to buy that buy that home in the mountains or yeah. the ocean yeah they, uh, they, they may shut down the economy again i better do it now you know you only live once yeah, I, I mean and this same thing we're seeing in these things like you know non-fungible tokens where people are buying digital art that exists right. only in you know and digital real estate i mean people are buying real estate and then they're doing like airbnbs on digital real estate so i mean it's you know these are the type of things you see when there's a lot of excess liquidity in the market and a lot of speculative mania uh, these have always ended badly and the question is only a function of when right and I think is what what's hilarious is the justification for all this stuff, right? All of a sudden, cryptocurrency is in vogue because the government's printing too much money. Mm-hmm. That's been going on, <laughs> exactly. right? You just you just That's figured that out. <laughs> all of a sudden, you need protection, right? Yeah, this and, has been going for and a while. This, <laughs> these volatile cryptocurrencies, which I still don't know how to value, are the answer. Right. 
Well, and that's going to be that's going to be an interesting thing because now the U.S. is starting into five pilot programs on a national digital currency, which, of course, what will eventually happen. And you and I talked about this, you know, two years ago. We said at some point, when cryptocurrency becomes a thing and begins to threaten, potentially threaten, you know, the in any manner, the U.S. dollar or national security. Um, you know, or people began to shelter a lot of assets into cryptocurrency, which is hard to track for, for the IRS for tax collection purposes, et cetera. Right. You know, the government will put a stop to it. And, and we're starting, to, and it's not just the U.S. We're, you know, India is in this process. China has already done a digital uh, currency that it actually expires. Uh, you, right. you invest in their digital currency. There's an expiration date, so you better spend it before it expires. So, I mean, we're going to see this gradual transition to national digital currencies and legal tender uh, in a digital form, you know, issued by an actual government rather than individuals. And I wouldn't be there. There are some concerns, mm-hmm. but it's not overly concerning. We've been going in this direction for 30 years. Right. Right. Credit cards, ATM cards. Uh, now things like Venmo. Right. We've been slowly transitioning to a way to pay a way to make payments, to receive payments digitally where money then later leaves your account. And by the way, that money is not sitting at your bank, right? right? Those are, that's digital as well and right. always, and has been for a long, long time. Banks don't have huge massive vaults of money. And if I write Lance a check, they don't have a Brinks truck go to my bank and send it to Lance's bank. That's right. not the way it works anymore. It was all digital. So, well, so this that's, is a uh, natural that's, but that, extension but, to but, but honestly, too, the fractional reserve banking issues is also one of the problems that's led to you know a lot of our financial crises because yes. banks aren't required to hold substantial deposits to back up demands uh, on on their potential uh, potential capital and in the midst of a withdrawal rate. So, you know, there's there's been a lot of drawbacks. You know, as well that we've that we've found out about fractional reserve banking. But that's also as we talked we talked we touched on this a little bit yesterday. You know, that's kind of the funny thing about crypto. People are putting money into crypto because they want to get out of the U.S. dollar, but the only way they can spend their crypto is turn it back into a U.S. dollar to spend it. Um, so, and they price it in U.S. dollars. And what's your Bitcoin worth? Yeah, $58,000. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, okay. So, I mean, it's just, it's kind of interesting, but, you know, what, what, what's, you know, with the government now starting to move in this, it's, it's that, that timer has now started potentially for a transition into a fully digital dollar for the U.S. And that's going to have a lot of implications, um, you know, moving forward in, in terms of not only how, how do we, you know, manage money, but also how businesses interact. So it's, it's going to be a very interesting thing to watch. There's another really interesting thing that's that we've talked touched on recently and starting to become concerning. A lot of this speculation in cryptocurrency is on leverage. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so we saw I forgot what it was, but someone was allowing like some crazy number, twelve hundred or twelve thousand times leverage on on cryptocurrency. Someone has taken a lot of risk there. So the question is, if hypothetically, if we wake up one morning and cryptocurrencies are down 50 percent, mm-hmm. will margin calls ripple through the financial system, not just affecting, you know, regular people at home, but will it affect hedge funds? Kind of like what we saw with that Archigo fund right. a few weeks ago, what we've seen with uh, going back 30 years to long-term capital. Right. Are we looking at a potential disaster that, that in you know, if cryptocurrency were to drop significantly, spreads to the whole financial system and financial stability, will, you know, 
could doggy coin or doji coin or whatever they call the stupid coin, <laughs> will that be the next, well, it, you know, it, it very event well. that causes the Fed to to worry about financial stability? Well, and not only that, though, I mean, it's even being done with ETFs. Uh, there's a new ETF out called the Core World Global Fund. It's 100 percent, almost 100 percent of that ETF is the Vanguard Total International Market. So now you've got ETFs of ETFs, which also cause a potential problem down the road if you do get into a liquidation mode within the market. So again, we're just leveraging the system all across the board, which is something that we only see near peak frenzies of markets. And we saw back in 1999, we saw 2007. Right. And there's all the evidence of it today. Mike, thank you so much for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow for the Friday's edition of The Real Investment Show. Get by the website. Michael Leibowitz's latest article is out on the website now. Be sure you're by the website realinvestmentadvice.com. Get all of our latest blog posts, articles. Our YouTube channel is well for our three minutes on markets and money. We'll see you tomorrow. Bro.